KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. After every show, it's always a mom that comes up to you with their daughter and like, and just tell you how much you you meant to my daughter. Like coming into the show, a lot of girls don't know that they're going to see a girl, and I think they walked up to you with the Swiss jersey on, and the mom's like, you know what, my kid hasn't stopped talking about talking about you since the moment you ran onto the court and did your little introduction. You hear that ten times a night. And our guest this week is Bria Young, one of the best basketball players to come out of the city. Spent time with the Harlem Globetrotters, was a star at Jefferson University, was a star in the public league at Prep Charter, uh, now head coach at New Foundations Charter School. Bria, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about what you are doing now. I mentioned you're coaching, but that's just a small piece of the puzzle that makes up your life. What is life like these days? Life is crazy right now, but it's crazy in a good way. So like you mentioned, I do coach at New Foundations um, Charter School. Uh, it's a high school in Northeast Philadelphia where I coach varsity girls basketball there. I also run uh, my organization, Bria Young Basketball, where I train kids on the weekends, um, do summer leagues, summer camps, clinics, those sorts of things. And then I also work a nine to five um, at Intercultural Family Services, a nonprofit right in Philadelphia. Was always basketball going to be a part of your life even after the playing days were done? Like you kind of knew, you didn't know maybe what it would look like, mm-hmm. but you were going to stay with it? Honestly, I think I didn't know at first. Um, and it wasn't until I played with the Globe Charters when one of my former Globe Charter coaches said to me, like, hey, I think you're going to be a coach. And I'm like, no way. Like, not me. I'm too quiet, too shy. But he was right. And now today I love I love coaching. I love training. Um, I love just giving back to children that grew up in the same neighborhoods that I grew up in. I'm always fascinated when the conversation flips and the player becomes the coach. Mm-hmm. How many moments in your coaching career have you had the Oh, that's what they were talking about. Or, boy, now that I see that, that is annoying. Like, how many times have you had that where you're kind of through the looking glass? I think every day. Every day is a new moment like that, but definitely every day. I don't think I understood as a player, but now as a coach, it's like, wow, this is like my coach is really saying some things that were true. And I see that in my players every day. Like, I tell them, you're going to... These are the best moments of your life and just embrace them because 40 years from now, you'll be working a nine to five and wishing you had these moments back. And I didn't understand that in the moment when my coaches would tell me that just to appreciate every single moment that you have to play the game that you love. So let's talk about your origin story with basketball. Mm -hmm. Was that always your sport growing up or were you kind of bouncing back and forth between different sports? I think basketball chose me from a young age. I believe my first organized game of basketball happened at um, was now known as Sherwood Recreation Center. It's in West Philadelphia. And I was introduced to the game. Um, my father and my uncle, used, they used to play in what's called Hoop It Up. It was a three-on-three outdoor basketball tournament. And I had pictures from like two years old, three years old, carrying the basketball in a little scooter. And you just see these courts in the background. So I think from a year, very young age, basketball chose me. I've never played any other sports. And I just think that, thank God, it was a decision that changed my life forever, I think. When did you start to realize you were good? <sighs> I want to say middle school. I actually, I grew up in Philadelphia, but for some reason in eighth grade, I went to school in Delaware. And at the time, Tina Martin, who was the coach at University of Delaware, her sister was my gym, my gym teacher in, okay. in Delaware. And I think that's when I realized because she came to watch me play in gym class one day. And I'm like, who the heck is this lady? And I'm um, trying to find out I was University of Delaware head coach. And I was like, okay, maybe I can play basketball in college. And I think that was my first indicator of, all right. 
let's take this seriously. So we mentioned prep charter. You had a ton of success there, but you also had injury. You yes. tore your ACL. What year was that you tore your ACL? My sophomore, my sophomore year and my junior year. So the end of my sophomore year and then mid-junior year. Were you playing or was it just you would take a, took a bad step? I was playing. That was my first game back. Um, my first game back from the first injury. Um, I was actually at Philadelphia University. I want to say Coach Shirley was there watching me play. And it was, I think, one of the last uh, play-by-play tournaments. And my first game back, I was on a fast break and tore my ACL again. And I was devastated. So you did it twice? Did it twice, yeah. Did it feel the same both times? Honestly, no. The first time the first time was terrible. It hurt so bad. And I knew something was wrong. Second time at FLU, I didn't think anything was wrong. I thought maybe I just, like, tweaked it a little bit. It didn't hurt at all. I didn't try. It was, it was. So when I received the news that I did tear my ACL again, it was like devastating. I thought I would never play basketball again. I was almost ready to give up. Um, but something inside of me told me just to keep going, and you never know where this will take you. Same knee? Like the same, same, knee. same knee, same everything. So the rehab the second mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. this is as someone who's never had a serious injury like that. I would imagine it is easier in the idea that you know what to expect. You know what the road, a general idea of what it looks like. Mm -hmm. But I would also imagine it's harder because you know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And you're at the bottom of a very tall mountain again. And that close together. What were your, you talked about, you thought you were ready to quit. Like, how long did it take you to kind of get yourself right Mm -hmm. mentally and and start the journey back? I think, honestly, the first time was easier. Uh, the second time, so the first time I rushed back. So normally they say you have to wait a year. Um, but at six months, I felt great. I was running, I was cutting, and I was like, I can do this. So I think that I kind of went against what the doctor was telling me. And I said, I'm, I'm good. And lo and behold, first game back, I tore it again. So I think the second time I knew that I couldn't rush back, I had to just let it run its course. And then when my body told me I was ready, I would be ready. And that happened a year later. So second time was like double the amount that I waited the first time. And I really just took things slow, and it became, began to approach my the end of my senior year. And I'm like, all right, I, all my offers are going now. No one's seen me play in the last year and a half. And I think that mentally it was just, like, really draining. But I just, something inside of me t- just told me to keep fighting and keep, keep working out and just stay, stay true to what I wanted. Um, so I was able to come back right before playoffs my senior year. And Luckily, St. Francis came to see me play, and they still kind of took a took a, a shot at what like the unknown almost. How long did it take you to be able to play without that nagging concern in the back of your head? Because you had it happen twice mm-hmm. so quickly, like right. where you weren't thinking. Where every time you did something that was a little awkward, mm-hmm. you kind of tensed up. I would imagine worrying right. is, am I going to feel it? Like how long did it take to get past that? Right. I want to say not until I returned back to Philly. U. I think my whole career at St. Francis, I had that big bulky knee brace. And not only with the knee, the knee injury, but also just being a freshman in somewhere that was, like, unfamiliar. Um, so I think every day at practice, I'm worrying about, all right, is, is this knee going to hold up? And fortunately enough, when I transferred back to Philadelphia University, I sat out a year and I was redshirted. So I, I had an extra year now to rehab and really, like, gain my confidence back. So that when I was able to play my... Sophomore season, but my first year at Philly U, I would think I was mentally ready, physically ready. And now I'm older than everybody else that I was playing against. So it kind of worked out. So the year at St. Francis, for people mm-hmm. that aren't familiar, that's out in Loretto, PA. Yes. It's a haul from here. You don't yeah, you don't cold. appreciate how long <laughs> Pennsylvania is until you have to drive right, it. Right. Uh, ain't a ton to do no. out in Loretto. It's not Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So how difficult was just being away 
being away with the uncertainty of the knee and, oh, by the way, trying to play Division One college basketball. How tough? I don't think it's measurable. I think it was extremely tough for me, especially like my personality. I'm not as outgoing as everyone else. So a lot of times I found myself just in my room doing nothing um, besides practicing and going to weights and going to eat and doing the study hall. Um, but like you said, it's totally different than what I grew up in in Philadelphia. Um, there's not much to do. It's always cold. It's on top of a mountain. Um, it's always snowing, so you can't really drive anywhere, and I wouldn't feel comfortable driving anywhere. But so it was tough. It was honestly like one of the hardest things that I've, that I've done. But I'm proud of myself because I was able to go there and I last the whole year. And it was it was definitely a learning lesson. Glad you did it, but wouldn't do it again. I I'm glad I did it. I I don't think I would do it again. I don't know. I I, I actually went back and started coaching there um, for a season in 2018. And I think that is like a totally different vibe for me. Like, I loved it. I loved coaching there. But as a player, I, it wasn't the same feelings that I felt. Did you feel like going up against Division One players, as much as you mm-hmm. can put the knee aside, did you mm-hmm. feel like you could do this? Like, you did Did you feel like I, I'm right on the same level with these guys? Yeah, definitely. I think that talent and playing-wise, I think that I was right where I need to be. I just think that a lot of the non-basketball things really got to me. Just like you said, the, the environment. And it was just like culture shock almost. Mm-hmm. So you play a year there, and then you mentioned you transfer to what's now Jefferson at mm-hmm. the time was Philadelphia University. Was that a place you had looked at before you decided to go to to St. Francis? You know, what kind of what was the timeline? And you mentioned Tom Shirley; he's the longtime head coach there. Yeah. Uh, what was the the connection and, and such that you, when you decided to make the change to come there? Right. So you mentioned like when did I realize like basketball would be serious for me? Also, an eighth grade coach Shirley reached out to me because my mom was working at. Philadelphia University, um, in HR. So he knew about me in eighth grade, and he reached out to me. And at the time, when I came to the campus to visit him as an eighth grader, in the back of my mind, I thought, like, no way, I'm not going Division Two. I never heard of Philly besides my mom working here. I don't want to go somewhere where my mom is working. So I knew of Coach Shirley, and I think that another important thing that I learned from him is like never burn bridges. Just because I didn't want to go there in eighth grade. The table was trying to turn, and when I was a freshman in college at St. Francis, I almost was begging him now, can I please come here? Like, I want to go back home. I want to be near my mom. I want to do all these things. Um, so we kept in contact through my whole high school career. He would he would kind of say, like, um, you want to be in the marching band? He's he's in the marching band. He's not on the front line, but he's in the back. And he said, you never, you just never want to burn bridges with anyone. So I I think that I kind of took, I took that. And fortunately enough, when I was trying to come back home, he opened up the doors to Philadelphia University and allowed me to come back in. And you mentioned that year off, and mm-hmm. it had to be huge for the knee, but did it just kind of let you take a deep breath with everything, yes. just in life? Yes, definitely. Even academics, I found myself struggling academically at St. Francis University, and I think that was all a part of just not being happy there. Um, so I think that that year gave me a time to refocus and physically and academically get, my, get myself together. So as someone who's done Jefferson basketball games, broadcasting them for years, I remember when you came on the scene, I remember early in your career, Tom Shirley would talk to me. He's like, what do you think of the new kid, Bria? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the talent's there, but man, she seems like she's trying to go a thousand miles an hour all the time. You would have a lot of games, and I'm mm-hmm. not hating, mm-hmm. where you would come in off the bench and you'd get two fouls charging, like right. you're, yep. you're trying to go aggressive. Yes. So I would be like... When she, if you can stay on the court, it's great. And boy, after that first year, mm-hmm. when you got put in the starting lineup, it was as a watching you like a switch flip. Right. All of a sudden, you took things as they came. 
You were completely comfortable within yourself. Did it feel like that? First of all, am I being fair in my analysis? Definitely being fair. <laughs> and second of all, did it feel like that for you? Like all of a sudden you weren't trying to score eight points every time you had the basketball. You weren't trying to make up for lost time. You right. were just being Bria. I think I was trying to prove myself, mm-hmm. and that's like not the way to go. I think once you sit back and let the game come to you is when you really – like flourish. I think that, especially coming from like a division one school, it's like, all right, I'm supposed to be this person. But in reality, it's not the case. You really just want to go somewhere and fit in. And that's what I had to realize. Even not starting, like you come in like, oh, I'm supposed to start and I'm supposed to be this. So I think a lot of, during my sophomore year, I was trying to prove myself. Yeah. But I think my junior year, once I was given that opportunity to start and be the point guard for that team, things just came naturally. What are your favorite memories of your time mm-hmm. at Jefferson slash Philly you be it games moments or just being 20 years old and playing basketball with your friends like what are your favorite memories definitely in moment I think number one would be the Mary Newell half court shot that was on ESPN top 10 I want to say it was a quarterfinal game against Caldwell at Philly U and Mary Newell hit a half court shot to send us to the semifinals I think we were down that game too so that was definitely number Number one, maybe tie for number one, um, right in line with that would be just winning the championship finally. Um, my senior year, I think those are my top two. I don't know which one is one, but definitely top two. How did you grow as a player? Because we talked about how you started to take it as it came. But if you watched you playing your junior and senior year at Jefferson, mm-hmm. you would have had no idea you had any problems. Right. Like you were just explosive and mm-hmm. an explosiveness that is unusual at the Division two level. Mm-hmm. You could slash defensively. You were almost like a a safety reading passes and stuff like that. How do you feel? What parts of your game grew the most during your college career? I would say confidence, even though it's not a basketball thing, but confidence definitely grew. And I think that as I as I gained more confidence, I just became a better scorer and a better defender. I've always been like a pass first point guard, and a lot of people, including Coach Shirley, said I was too nice. Like I didn't have that. Uh, like just want to go out there and win. And I think once I realized like I can do this and not being afraid to be successful, I really saw my game flourish. And just my, my scoring went up and steals went up and rebounds went up. And I think everything, as I just knew that coach had confidence in me to do these things. I never wanted to seem like a ball hog because I was a point guard. I was like, all right, I can't score the ball and bring the ball up because no one else is going to touch the ball. But once I realized, like, all right, my team needs me to contribute in these ways, I really saw growth um, in my game, especially from my junior to my senior year. So how does an opportunity with the Globetrotters mm-hmm. present itself? You know, where does that start? Is that something somebody comes up to you like a, a scout and says, hey, would you be interested? Do you get a call, an email? You know, how does the whole process work? Okay, so when I was in middle school, I was in love with Temple University and Dawn Staley. And I went to every single game. And if I couldn't go to the game, I had attitude and all these other things. So I wanted to go to Temple. Um, but uh, long story short, one of the Temple players for Tima Lister, previously known as for Tima Maddox, she went to Temple, and when she graduated, she was from Colorado and didn't want to go back home, so she came and stayed with my family. Um, so fast forward to high school, but Tima had the opportunity to play with the Globetrotters, and she was on the team, and then when I became a senior, she put the word in for me, and they had a tryout in Wildwood, so they called me and said, hey, we received your information, received some game film, we want you to come try out for our team. So I was able to go to a tryout in Wildwood, and at the time, I thought, there's no way I'm going to make this team. Like, I don't know any tricks. Um, I went to the trial. They were all guys. I was like one of the two girls, maybe out of 50 guys there. And all they asked us to do was just play five-on-five basketball. So I'm like, all right, I'm out here with all these guys that are dunking and doing all these crazy 
trips and things like that. And I didn't think I was romantic at first, but when I got out there and just played basketball, I was like, oh, basketball is basketball, whether it's guys or girls. So I went to the tryout, and it was honestly the longest two months of my life. Like, they had a first tryout, then they had a follow-up tryout, then they had all these interviews. But lo and behold, I was able to make the team and really changed my life forever. Were you surprised in the tryout process that it was mostly just straight basketball? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. there's so much... Fun stuff put in (laughs) entertainment. A lot of times the basketball seems secondary. So were you pleasantly surprised? Like when you're like, oh, we're just just going to hoop. I was was honestly relieved because I thought that they were going to ask me to do all these crazy things. And I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? Like trying to think of a trick to do. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. But when I got there and they just said, all right, guys, literally like like a high school trial we did layups we did passing drills then we played five on five so i was honestly relieved and i think that to be a globe trotter the first thing they look for is just a basketball player because they'll teach you how to do everything else we have a two-week training camp and they just look for a basketball player and really a good person those are the two things you have to do to be a globe trotter just be a good person and know how to play basketball well so what's the reaction when you find out you've you're going to be a globe trotter because it's obviously an honor but you're mm-hmm. It's an honor in the moment as, wow, I'm going to get the chance to play pro. But you're part of an incredible basketball legacy. Maybe the most renowned basketball team in world history. Yeah, Yeah, You could make the argument. So when you find out, is it surreal? And how do you find out? Do you get a call? Like, what's it like? I actually emailed them and called them like five times. Like, hello, like, don't forget <laughs> about me. And they kept saying, well, you know, we're, we're still deciding who we want to bring on. And But when I finally received that call, like, hey, you made it. And we're going to fly you out next week to sign the contract. I was relieved. Initially, I was relieved. I was happy. And I was like, finally. But then that instantly turned into like nerves. I'm like, oh, man, now I'm going to be, I don't know what's next. So I was I was nervous for a while. But I think that um, once I completed the, like I said, a two-month training camp and from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. just doing globe trotter things, I stepped into that position and I became confident and confident enough to go out there and make people happy for two hours that they're with us. Where is the training camp? Do they have like a, a headquarters? In Marietta, Georgia. Okay. In Carolina. Mm-hmm. So you you head down there. How much of the of that training camp are you? Because I imagine there's an assumption basketball wise, everybody's got a certain baseline that right. we will figure that out. Mm-hmm. So is it how much of it is just kind of timing and choreography and like what would a practice feel like look right. like? So to be honest, I don't think I got it my first training camp. It wasn't until the second time around when I had training camp when I was like, all right, now I know these things. But my first training camp, it was tough. It was. A lot of it's going to be completely hours. different from what you're used to it from was. a basketball standpoint. It was. It was really because it is a show. It was a lot of it learning tricks. So we had to learn a lot of tricks. And they're hard, harder than they look. So I would spend hours, go back into my apartment, I mean, go back into my hotel room and try to spin the ball on my finger and the ball's falling off and hitting the TV and hitting the lamps. I'm like, oh, <laughs> hope I don't get charged for this. But <laughs> it took a while. So I won't say that I like mastered it the first training camp. Um, but a typical day, we would wake up, go to the gym and... At that time, we were split into, like I said, we have different units. So um, at any given time, the Globe Trotters have three different units out. Um, so we were splitting our unit, and you really just go through the whole entire production from doors opening until we sign that last autograph and get out of there. So it's just really going through the show. And then we also have, like, PR training, a lot of media and uh, photo ops that we have to go through. Um, and luckily, Chick-fil-A's headquarters there. So we had a lot of Chick-fil-A, but typical day was long, and it was just straight from 8 to 10 p.m. How much does the show change? Is mm-hmm. it a certain amount of time and then you guys add, subtract, mm-hmm. or 
maybe you worked on different things in training camp that the first run you don't do, but then you're brought back. Like, how do you, how is it choreographed like that? Right. So every year is a new, a new show, a new tour, a new show, a new theme. And then within each unit, they do have a flexibility to tweak it how they see fit. So um, I don't think any two low charter shows will be the exact same, but each year there is like the same storyline and, Hopefully the Globe Charters win every time because if not, we'll all be fired. <laughs> um, but it is like it's like playing pickup, and then you you have to stop and do these moments where we had to incorporate the show into it. We need to take a break. We will have more with Bria Young right after this. This is one on one, and we are back on one on one, continuing our conversation with Bria Young, former Harlem Globe Trotter, former Jefferson University basketball star. What was it like? I think you were the fourteenth woman yes. mm-hmm. to be a globetrotter mm-hmm. did you feel any pressure because i mean you're not just a globetrotter but mm-hmm. you are one of the first handful of women to to wear the uniform and a lot of kids are coming out and looking up mm-hmm. to you did you feel any extra pressure past just being a globetrotter i think so i think at the time when i was on the team there were three females so there was just one girl on each unit so I was on the team with 10 other male Globetrotters and then also 10 other, what's the team we play? Uh, the Washington Generals. The Generals. So a lot of times I was the only female, and I think because of that, now all eyes are kind of on me. Um, but I think that also was rewarding because I knew that every young girl in that crowd would look at me and say, hey, Mom, look, there's a girl on that team. I didn't know there, there was a girl on the team. And now instantly every young girl in the crowd is like, hey, I can do this when I grow up, or I can be the only girl that, I don't know, plays the drums or whatever. Maybe not just may not just be basketball, but now girls know that they can also fit in and compete with guys no matter what they do. What was harder, the basketball training or the PR, mm-hmm. the constant media attention, the having to, you know, I know when you guys come to a city, you got to go do the the morning shows for the right. local TV and radio and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I think you said when we started, like, that's not mm-hmm. you. Right. Like, so... What was harder? Definitely the PR and all the extra things. I think, like you said, my personality is not that. So I had to learn how to, like, turn the switch on. And the moment I step out of my hotel room, even though I'm not on the court, there are fans there and kind of had to be this person where it's like, all right, you got to smile. I always smile, but also just got to be bubbly. And and then the moment I go back to my hotel room, now I can turn the light off and now I can be Bria Young again. Um, But with the with the PR and going to the morning shows, the Globe Charters actually go out a couple of weeks before the actual show. So if you're not on tour, you may be doing PR and you're literally doing PR all day from the time. Like morning shows, 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to a couple morning shows and then going to school. The yeah. Then you're doing trick shots with the mayor in the afternoon. So it's really I enjoyed doing the PR part of it because I got to meet a lot of new people. But once again, like doing PR even now I'm nervous and I don't know why but it's just like every time you step in front of a microphone or a camera you gotta like put your best foot forward and also represent now a national brand where you don't want to make a mistake I mean there's a good chance that there is a generation of kids Mm -hmm. a good handful of which will say I was inspired because I saw your name was Swish with the Globe because when I was seven the Globetrotters came to my town, right. and they had this player swish, and I thought it was the coolest thing. Like, that's really, really deep and intense stuff to yes. be in a position where just your presence can inspire. Yeah. How long, because you're young when you're playing, not that you're old now, but you know what <laughs> I'm saying. Old. Like <laughs> so older. How long did it take you to fully mm-hmm. kind of appreciate the impact you could have simply by being who you were, where you were? 
think I realized that early because after every show, it's always a mom that comes up to you with their with their daughter and like and just tell you how much you you meant to my daughter. Like coming into the show, a lot of girls don't know that they're going to see a girl, and I think they walk up to you with the swish jersey on and. The mom's like, you know what? My kid hasn't stopped talking about you, talking about you since the moment you ran onto the court and did your little introduction. And I think you you hear that like ten times a night. So the Globetrotters really put a an emphasis on just girl power. And I think that with them hiring females, they really tried to like change the culture of the Globetrotters because Fatima, who I mentioned, I w- believe she was the ninth Globetrotter, but prior to her. In like 20 or 30 years, there were no female Globetrotters. So she kind of like set the tone like, all right, now women are going to enter the game. And since her, they've been hiring females back to back. And so I think it started to switch a little bit, the culture of the Globetrotters. And like I said, just early on, I think that I realized like the impact that I'm having on even not just young girls, but also the young boys. because They are like, oh, mom, look, the girls on the team. So I think both you really, you really, I really realized that early on. So you spent two years with the Globetrotters. Yes. We were talking off the air. Mm-hmm. There's that part, which is incredibly important. You're playing basketball, getting paid for it. It's fun, but it's a grind. It does. It's is. a lot of traveling. Now mm-hmm. you're probably traveling in pretty nice ways, but mm-hmm. travel is travel. Mm-hmm. And give us some context. Like how long were you away from home? You know, is it months at a time, weeks at a time? Yeah. So that was kind of the most surprising thing for me, not being able to come back home. So we have training camp in August, I want to say, for two weeks. And then we go home and they let us know, all right, Christmas Eve, you're going to fly out and we're going to start tour. So I think that was like the first shock of like, all right, I can't spend Christmas with my family. So Christmas Eve, we fly out and my first stop was Houston. So that was like my first show. So I flew out to Houston Christmas Eve and then we're on tour from Christmas Day is our first show. And usually that whole week, Christmas between between Christmas and New Year's is double headers. Mm-hmm. So the first week ever, it's like we're playing at 12 and we're also playing at 7 because kids are out of school. So we do a week of double headers and then we just hit the road and we're on the road until May. And during the U.S. tour, that's all U.S. tour. And we go, we have our own tour bus and we bus overnight city to city. Um, and then in May, we get to go back home. So it's those, what, five or six months where we're away from our families. And luckily, I was on the East Coast tour, so I got to see my family a little bit, but not as much as I wanted to. And then eventually, you also go overseas. How many different yes. countries? Did you say 25? Yeah, so really, I didn't have a break. So as soon as I was done my uh, domestic U.S. tour, they shipped me overseas. <laughs> um, and that was initially a 17-country European tour. Um, and I did that tour, and honestly, I loved it. It was my first time being in Europe. I flew to, I think Paris was my like, my first stop, and I honestly really enjoyed it. Um, but I also have now been to uh, Middle East and to China. What was the strangest place you play? Ooh. Now, either strange <laughs> in the location, mm-hmm. or I know sometimes you guys play out, at least over the years, they played outdoors mm-hmm. or on a ship or something like that. Did you have anything that really stands out from your days? I want to say the strangest and coolest place that I've been to, UAE, I want to say it's right next to Dubai. And we played, it was outdoors, but it was on Yaz Island. Okay. And it's an island with like Ferrari World and Warner Brothers and all these cool like theme parks. And we played outdoors in this outdoor court. And it was honestly like the best games ever. And I, at first I was nervous being in the like Middle East and the culture and I have tattoos. And I'm like, all right, what do I, I'm the only girl here. Mm-hmm. So what do I do? But honestly, it was like life changing. And I just really appreciate the culture there. And it was my birthday, so I was able to wake up on my birthday in the middle of a desert and go to the desert with my teammates and just appreciate the moment. And 
um, live in the moment. Were there days during these tours when you would wake up in the hotel and you honestly couldn't be 100 percent sure where you were, where you were? And I don't say that tongue in cheek, but it's mm-hmm. just so much travel and hotels, a hotel for the most part. Yes. And did you have a lot of where you're like, all right, today we're in X <laughs> because we got in last night? Like, yep. you know, I think all the time, especially overseas, because you don't really know where you are to begin with. And we I actually used the app where I was able like to track every country that I've been to. But now looking back at it, I don't know like the cities or the small towns that I've been to. And I wish I remember them, but I don't. So I know I've been to Spain, but it's like, all right, what parts of Spain mm-hmm. have I been to? Um, so I don't think I'll ever get that back, but definitely every night and you just wake up and it's, I'm somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. Were there any places where you were able, because we talk about being a grind, like mm-hmm. hotel, gym, eat, Hotel, gym, eat like, were there any places where you got a little bit of time to spend, to be mm-hmm. a tourist, to just be in a different country and enjoy it? Or was it really, for the most part, in and out? Yeah, a lot of the time. So as a player, I would say every two weeks you might get a day off. But unfortunately, your day off is not going to be in a big city. So when we we did have an off day, it would be somewhere that maybe only had a Walmart and that was it. But as if I was doing brand ambassading um, and doing PR, um, I was able to see a lot more of the city. So some of the coolest places that I've been able to explore and had like a day off was Rome, uh, Paris, even Belgium. I don't remember much of China. I think China was just hustle and bustle. And, but yeah, off days are usually small cities. Did you have any moments? Because you talk about having the mm-hmm. tattoos in the Middle East mm-hmm. and you you just don't know because of the differences in cultures. Yeah. Were there any places where there were, I don't even mean like scary moments, but just mm-hmm. awkward moments where what you did and what mm-hmm. the people watching, they didn't, it just didn't jive? Were there anything like that? I think most, the Middle East might have been the most, for lack of better words, like just uncertain and awkward and not knowing what to do. I actually wrapped my arm and wore long sleeves just because I didn't want to offend anyone and I wanted to be safe. But a lot of times when we're overseas and they don't speak English, it's kind of the show in itself is kind of awkward because a lot of our show is verbal. Mm-hmm. But we try to learn a few words and a few like catch phrases that they can catch on to. But luckily, basketball is universal. Right. So if we put the ball through the hoop and do some tricks, they'll love it. But I think that the show goes a lot quicker because it's not a lot of verbiage overseas. It's just we're playing basketball and trying to do like nonverbal things and throw in the water bucket and things like that where we don't have to talk much. Was there any place where you were surprised how well you guys were received? Like, I mean, like I said, it's a Mm -hmm. global brand. Even if you don't speak the language, Mm -hmm. I think the the uniform and what you guys do translates. Mm -hmm. But was there any place where you're like, wow, I did not think that we would be big in Luxembourg like that or whatever. You know, was there any place like Mm -hmm. that? Surprisingly, overseas, they love Globetrotters. I think more than the U.S. In the U.S., we might, I don't know, sell out half of an arena, but overseas, Every arena was 100% full. Um, some of my favorite places to play, probably the O2 in London. It's a huge, beautiful arena. They have so many, like, secret locker rooms. And, like, I think MJ had, like, a secret locker room there. And I was able to explore that. But the, the crowd overseas is always amazing, no matter where we are. Yeah, Europe, Europe really shows out. <laughs> you talk about the importance of the impact and just mm-hmm. being there. How difficult is it, though, to always have to be on? Because it doesn't even – you have – he having a bad day, but mm-hmm. to always have to have the smile and you are a happy person. Like, mm-hmm. I don't mean to, but yeah. it's a lot when you could have a thousand great in contacts a day. All mm-hmm. it takes is you'd have one person that you're just not right. that great with and they say something and all of a sudden, right. you know, so how hard was it to just to be on constantly? Yeah. It was extremely hard. And 
almost like draining. I think that's part of the reason why I decided to move into coaching. I think that, like you said, being on nonstop and having people always want like 100% of your energy and things like that. It's draining, but it's also rewarding because you never know what people are going through and you never know how a small interaction with you will like change their life. And they'll probably always remember that moment. And moments that I don't remember, I'm sure that there are little kids out there that will always remember it. Um, So it's kind of like it's something that you just have to do. And I think that you get fulfillment just by knowing that you're making somebody happy. Just even if it's just for a a 10 second interaction with them, you know that like you're changing their life and your smile or your autograph or your high five might really change the way this kid looks at life. So you do it for two years. Mm -hmm. Kind of. Did you know you were done? Like at a certain point in that, I would imagine in that second year, you're still a globetrotter. Mm-hmm. It's still fun, but right. tired of living out of a suitcase and it's a lot. And mm-hmm. I would imagine playing that much basketball, even only 24, 25 years old, like yeah. at beach up, mm-hmm. like it's, it's, it's a lot. So what was like the decision to put it aside and how tough was it? Honestly, I think after like halfway through my, my second year, I just started to realize like, all right, eventually I need a plan B and. The life cycle of like the average globe charter is not a long time because they're always bringing in new talent. So ironically, St. Francis, they called me and they were like, hey, we have an opening. If you're interested, you can apply and it'll, it'll be yours. And at the time I was in China and that was like one of the toughest decisions I had to make if I wanted to continue with another third season with the globe charters or did I really feel like it was time for me to to move on and begin a coaching career that can last, I guess, longer than my playing career would. So I made the choice that once the China tour was over, that I would inform the need to know was at the Globetrotters, and that's just what I did. After you do that, mm-hmm. what, what did it feel like? Was it kind of like a, uh, yeah, I made the right decision? Yeah. Like, it, it just felt right? I think so. I didn't have a lot of time to, like, really reflect on it, because as soon as I was done with the Globetrotters, I was flying out to Loretto and starting recruiting and just getting acquainted back with coaching and being, like, back in college basketball. Was it life? Going to the Globetrotters, it's like you go in zero to 100 miles an hour, and then stopping being a Globetrotter, you're going 100 to zero. Yes. Like, (laughs) did you find yourself kind of – I mean, I'm sure there's a part where it's just, like, nice to Mm -hmm. not have to constantly. But last two years, life's been moving pretty fast. Did it take – was it an adjustment to kind of get back to to coaching, but just not to Mm -hmm. being everywhere all the time? Yeah, I I think so. I think that coaching was still – Coaching at St. Francis was still a lot of work. I didn't realize, like, how much Division One coaches do. So I think that even though I wasn't traveling, I was still, like, exhausted at the end of the days just from being a coach. Because now I have to worry about not just myself, but now 12 other girls on the team that I'm kind of responsible for. And even as an assistant coach, it's a lot of responsibilities. And then just player development. So during that time, it was a lot of, like, small group and one-on-one workouts. So I found myself in the gym still, like, with the Globetrotters, just training and getting the kids prepared for our season. Did the coaching, like, right away, were you like, this is where I need to be? Heck no. Really? <laughs> I was, I was again, being me, I didn't know where to find, like, my voice as an assistant coach and a young assistant coach because a lot of the girls were, I looked down the line and I'm like, these girls are the same age as me. So mm-hmm. how do I define myself as an authority figure and as a coach and someone that knows what they're talking about? So I think initially I struggled with that and I just, like anything, just kept going and I finally found like how I was going to contribute as a coach and be the connection kind of between an older head coach and then the players. Is there a moment when it crystallized that you found that? Yeah. You found your voice and you found your pace? Like, and do you remember it? 
Was there, or I should like, was there a moment that you feel like was kind of a pivot point or was it just a gradual thing? Um, I think it was gradual, but also I, I think I just realized that when the head coach would come to me and ask for, well, what are the players thinking? Because they knew that the players would come to me to talk about issues that they may be having and where they might not be, might not feel comfortable going to the head coach, they would come to me. So I think once I start hearing the head coach, like asking for my input, like, hey, what what are the girls telling you? I know that they're telling you something. So I think that was like the moment. I think that happened pretty early. I think naturally, I think just players relate to people that look and are similar in age and things like that, like them. How much did all the ancillary stuff with the Globetrotters, the PR, Mm -hmm. the talking with kids or whatever, Mm -hmm. help you? become a better coach because the basketball's always been there. The X's yeah. and O's has always been there. Yeah. But I would imagine when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to talking to mm-hmm. kids about life and stuff like that, you've got a unique skill set that's built up from two years of being basically an ambassador for a globally mm-hmm. loved basketball brand. I would imagine that helped you in a lot of different ways that maybe you wouldn't think mm-hmm. it helped you when you come to coaching. Yeah. So to to become a Globetrotter, you have to be an ambassador of goodwill. And I think that uh, by going to like school assemblies or going to community events, I learned to kind of preach that to to young kids, and I think that that carryovers to coaching because now when we're recruiting, we're looking for not just basketball players. We want good players, kids that are going to listen, that have great body language, that are coachable. So I learned like how to look for that, and also how to teach that to to people, um, just from becoming a globe charter. Um, I also think that the globe charters like their mission and values align with my personal mission and values, and I think. To this day, what I'm doing now, everything kind of just is the same mission and values and just giving back and helping people. And that's really what I kind of base my whole life on and what I do now. What's the door to new foundations? And, hmm? you know, how does that opportunity arise? All right. So, unfortunately, after um, one year with St. Francis, actually our first tournament in Baylor, we played Baylor, and um, our head coach was let go. So they bought in. So the head coach at the time was a coach that coached me when I was a player there. So they let he was let go, and they brought in an interim head coach who also was a coach that coached me during that time. Um, but she was also the AD. So at the end of the year, they went through the hiring process and brought in a completely different person who decided to bring her own coaching staff in. Um, at that point, I came back home, reached out to Coach Shirley, and Coach Shirley is on the board at New Foundations, and he mentioned that they had an opening for a head coach position for the girls' basketball team. So then I went through the interview process with New Foundations, and honestly, it's one of the—I love it there. I absolutely love it. The kids are great. The school is just a great school. So this is this is my fourth season this year, and I love it. What was it—I don't want to say overwhelming because you've traveled the world and, mm-hmm. and everything, but once it's your program mm-hmm. and you're in charge, mm-hmm. it's different. Did it take a while to kind of get your arms around everything that you were responsible for? I think so, and I think it was— an adjustment to switch between like college athletes who are kind of adults and you can say certain things to and just approach a different way. And now I'm coaching high schoolers who are 13, 14, 15 years old and they really don't make decisions on their own. It's really now got to involve the parents. So I think that was a bit of adjustment. But once again, basketball is basketball. And once I learned like how the, just those dynamics uh, work, I think that it was pretty easy. When you have played at elite levels, I love asking this question, mm-hmm. and you turned and you start coaching. How difficult is it to give up control? You can work with a kid for hours. You mm-hmm. can explain it on the whiteboard. You can talk to them on the bench. Mm-hmm. But you're seeding control once they go into the game. And I know for a lot of people, it is a big hurdle to get over mm-hmm. to 
not being able to to do the thing, you have to hope the person does the thing the way you told them to do it. How much of a struggle was it dealing with that? And is it still a struggle? Yeah. It, it definitely still, <laughs> it still is a struggle. It's, it's frustrating because you have to just put your trust in your players, but that's kind of what you develop them for, for however long you train. If it's all year, all year long, you're training them for that moment so that now when they're in the game, you have complete trust in them and that they're going to do exactly what you need them to do. And when they don't, it's frustrating, but it's like, all right, we're just going to try again tomorrow. Um, and that's really the beauty in it because once they finally did it, it's like, wow, like I knew they did it. And it's really an amazing like feeling just knowing that you, they started here and now they're being successful over here. Closing the, the door on playing mm-hmm. and doing it on your terms. Like it wasn't an injury where, you know, mm-hmm. when you, you didn't get cut and that mm-hmm. was it. Like, is there ever any feelings of, I'm still in pretty good shape. I'm still young enough. <laughs> They're still tread on the tires. Like maybe I should make a call and say, like, right. is there ever that? Or mm-hmm. once you were done, it was put to bed and we've moved on. Now we're coaching. There were a few times where I actually composed the email to the global charts. Like, all right, let me see if they're <laughs> they're looking for players now. And I think both times I'm like, all right, nah, I'm coaching. But there are always like thoughts of going back to coaching. Um, this was maybe two or three years ago, but right now I'm washed up. <laughs> I turned 30 a couple months ago, and I'm like, there's no way I can play anymore. But there were definitely thoughts of like, all right, maybe I give it one more season, one more go. Um, I tried to play like in a summer league in Philly, and I did terrible. So I'm like, all right, this is all I need to know. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Coaching it is. Could you have imagined, I mean, you mentioned just turning 30, like mm-hmm. what you've been able to accomplish and the things you've been able to do. I mean, yeah. a lot of times it gets lost in the day-to-day. Right. But when you take the big picture where mm-hmm. basketball has taken you literally mm-hmm. and figuratively, I mean, at such a young age. I don't think I actually realize it, but it's truly breathtaking. I think I kind of wrote it out the other day, but I've almost played and coached basketball on every level. And it's kind of like so cool to see. I'm just playing like high school and division one, division two, playing professionally. And now I'm coaching AAU and high school and college. And it's almost like I've had that experience that like, like you said, at such a young age. But I think that the sky's the limit and I will continue to grow and hopefully one day get back into college coaching. Priya Young, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Bria Young for coming in studio, being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.